Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, especially those disconnected from Christ. And we hope you are encouraged by today's message. That's what I expect from the 1130 crowd right there. Just a lot of mumbling and talking, and you give you 20 seconds, you guys take two minutes, but that's fine. It's totally fine. Everybody doing all right today? Some people are doing great over here. Nobody's doing great over here. That's all right. It's fine. Hey, uh, in the 1960s, there was an experiment done by some researchers at Stanford University. They were looking at the behavioral choices of four-year-olds, which which would make for great experiments. But they took four-year-olds and they brought them in and they put them individually into a room. And here's what they told them. They said, if you want, there were some treats out in front of them. They said, if you want a marshmallow, you can have that marshmallow right now. But if you will wait just a few minutes until we come back, we'll give you a second marshmallow, and then you'll have two. That's the only way to get two is if you wait. Don't eat that one until we get back. Then you'll have two to eat. And then they left, and they were watching through kind of two-way glass at what these four-year-olds would do. And, and most of the four-year-olds went right away or at some point before the guys came back, and they grabbed the marshmallow and they ate the marshmallow because that's what four-year-olds do and 24-year-olds and 34-year-olds and 44-year-olds, and you get it. So that's what they did. But there were 30% of the four-year-olds that did not eat the marshmallow while the researchers were out of the room. They waited. Some of them looked at it intently. Some of them walked around it. Some of them, it's interesting, some of them walked to the other side of the room, turned their back to the marshmallow, and stared at the wall. The marshmallow was back there so that they couldn't see it until the researchers came back in. Now, the researchers stayed out of the room 15 minutes. In four-year-old world, that's like dog years. I mean, it's like 400 years, right? So they waited, and then the researchers came back in, and for those 30% of the four-year-olds, the hundreds of people there that they were observing, they gave them a second marshmallow, they ate the two marshmallows, and the world was right again. Now, here's what they did. The researchers followed those four-year-olds for a number of years. And they came to where they were when they were about 17, 18 years old, when they were now kind of older, high school, pre-college age young people. And here's what they observed about that same group of people that used to be the four-year-olds in that observation room. Those that did not eat the marshmallow initially, those that waited, those that delayed the gratification, they were better students, they had higher grades, Their SAT scores were about 210 points higher than the students who had, on average, than the students who had eaten the marshmallow originally. They, if they had a job, they had been promoted at a faster rate than those students who had jobs but had not yet been promoted that that ate the marshmallow first. Because here's what they discovered. They surmised from what they were observing that the students, the the, the four-year-olds that were able to abstain, they were able to say no in a moment that was very enticing to them. They were able to delay their gratification just for a few minutes. Once they got a little older, they were able to get up even when they didn't feel like it and go to work. They were able to do homework. They were able to turn in their work. They were able to make better lifestyle choices because they were able to delay their gratification and recognize the priorities in that specific moment. Now, the reason that I tell you that, the reason that I start with that is because over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about addiction. And addiction, I don't know what you have in your mind when you hear that word. Maybe you think of a struggle, an addiction that you have fought or are fighting in your life right now. Maybe you think about addiction that a friend or a family member has currently or has struggled with over the years. 
Maybe you just think about what you see on television or in the movies. But whatever you have in your mind, we're going to spend some time over the next three weeks talking about this idea of addiction. And we're going to have fun with it. Now, today's a little heavier, but the next two weeks are going to be incredible. We're talking today about addiction to pleasure. Next week, we're going to, be a talk, we're going to talk about addicted to busy, which is going to be fun. You need to be here for that. And then the third week, we're going to talk about addicted to social status. Again, it's going to be so much fun. You need to be here for that. But when we're talking about addiction... I want to make sure that we all have a basic understanding of what we're talking about. So I want to read you a longer definition of the word addiction, and then I want to read you a shorter definition. We're going to use both of these, or this definition all three weeks. This is what it says according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Addiction is an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use or other behaviors. Addiction is characterized by inability to consistently abstain, impairment in behavioral control, craving, diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behavior and interpersonal relationships, and a dysfunctional emotional response. Like other chronic diseases, addiction often involves cycles of relapse and remission. Now, there's a lot there, but remember the first part that said, it is an individual's pathological pursuit towards reward and or relief by substance use or other behavior. Merriam-Webster defines addiction this way, a strong and harmful need to regularly have something such as a drug or to do something such as gamble. A, a strong and harmful need to regularly have something or to do something. Now, we're probably familiar with what addiction means or at least what it might look like. And in and, and just a minute, I'm going to give you some statistics about some of the things that, again, we, we talk about like substance abuse and the types of addictions that you probably have in your head. But today, as we talk about addiction, we're going to be talking about addicted to pleasure. And so let me define one more definition for you. Let me define pleasure. This is what it's defined as, again, by Merriam-Webster, a feeling of happy satisfaction and enjoyment. Now, when you read that or you hear me say that, it could be that you're thinking, wait a minute, are you about to preach that we should not want to be happy, not want to be satisfied, and not want to be fulfilled? Well, what if I was? That's not what I'm going to say, but what if I was, right? Here's what I'm saying. If you are pursuing happiness, satisfaction, or fulfillment as pleasure through some type of addictive behavior, that's what we're addressing today. We're addressing the type of pleasure that actually starts out as something that you enjoy. It's pleasure-seeking, but it leads toward your destruction. That's what we're addressing today. And so what I want to do is I want to read for you just some statistics that I ran across in preparation for today, looking at all the different, not even all, some of the different types of addictions that people struggle with mostly looking at the United States, but the types of addictions that a lot of people struggle with here in the United States. And I eliminated, I'm not even exaggerating, I probably eliminated 80 statistics that I didn't even, I'm not even going to read today that I felt like were important, but probably not as important as some of these. So here's a few of these statistics. 21 and a half million American adults. And this, this uh, organization is classifying adults as anybody 12 or older. So 21 and a half million uh, people in America, 12 years old or older, battle a substance abuse disorder, at least in 2014 they did, 21.5 million. The World Health Organization estimates that the global burden of disease related to drug and alcohol issues to be 5.4% worldwide. That means if you took every person in the world from the, the, the major uh, developed countries to those that were undeveloped countries, and you lined all the people in the world up side by side, one out of every 20 has a substance abuse issue related to drug and alcohol. 
one out of every 12 teenagers, and one out of every six young adults, those are people 18 to 25, battle substance abuse issues. 51.8% of the U.S. population age 12 and older are current drinkers of alcohol. That's 131 million people. That's not the most staggering statistic because of the use of alcohol is the most staggering. 23% of the U.S. population ages 12 or older, and 41% of young adults binge, had some binge drinking in the last 30 days. Binge drinking is defined as having five or more drinks in one day within the last 30 days. So we're talking here about 60 million people had more than five drinks in one day just within the last 30 days. 6.7% of the U.S. population age 12 or older and 14% of young adults reported heavy drinking. This is defined as having five or more drinks in a day for five days in the last 30 days. So we're talking about 7% of all people 12 and older and 14% of young adults. We're talking about 18 million people have had more than five drinks, more than five days, just in the last 30 days. 27.4% of the U.S. population were users of some tobacco product in the last 30 days. That's an estimated 70 million people in the United States. 68% of the U.S. population age 20 and older are either overweight or obese, usually related to eating habits and not hereditary diseases. Approximately 10 million people have a serious or significant problem with gambling. 42.7% of internet users viewed pornography this month. 6 to 8% of Americans, which is 18 to 24 million people, have some type of sexual addiction. And 80% of women who have an addiction to pornography take it offline and meet with someone in person because of their sexual addiction. Now, I didn't even touch on some of the most illicit addictions, illicit drugs. These were just some of the easiest to find statistics related to the, the things that so many people in the U.S. struggle with. And when I read these types of statistics, I think about all those people that they didn't start out trying to become addicted to anything. They just, they started out doing something or there was a behavior and it, it kind of scratched an itch. There was something that they felt, something that they thought. And when I read these statistics, here's two things that jump out to me. The first is that a large number of people struggle with addictive behavior. I mean, that's, that's almost goes without saying. A large number of people. We just read that one in 20 in the entire world and 100 million plus in some instances, and 50 million plus, and 25 million plus in some instances, struggle with some of the things that we just talked about. We're talking about a large number of people struggling with addictive behavior. And the second takeaway that I have that you may not agree with is this. Some behaviors that may be okay in the beginning, or even be okay in moderation, can become addictive and lead to larger problems. That some behaviors that may be okay in the beginning and they may even be okay in moderation for a lot of people become addictive and lead to larger problems. Now, here's what you need to know before we dive into anything else. My goal is never to shock you. My goal is never in any way to say things, to, to be edgy or to try to, you know, kind of push the envelope. If you know me, you know my heart, and, and I pray that you understand where I'm coming from. If you don't know me, I'm begging you today to give me the benefit of the doubt. Today, my entire objective is to do what I always do when I stand on this stage, to hear from the Holy Spirit 
and to deliver to you what I believe the Holy Spirit would have for us as a church and allow the Holy Spirit to do the work in your heart and your life where appropriate and, and just stay out of the way. That, that's genuinely what I try to do every single time that I take this stage. And that's what I want to try to do today. So where are we going to start? We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing a letter in response to a church, to a group of people in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a, a city there in, in that part of the world, in that time in history, that uh, there was a lot of things going on, kind of everything goes, nothing off limits, nothing out of bounds. And so the church that existed there was writing the Apostle Paul letters and asking him, how should we conduct ourselves in church? How should we conduct ourselves when we're in the community? What should we do in our families? What should we do in business? And so he addresses a lot of things. And First and Second Corinthians, these books that we have in the Bible, are him responding to their inquiries. And there's a lot of times you'll see things quoted, and he's saying, as you said, and when you wrote, and what you do. And so there's a lot of things that he's referencing in that regard. And this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. He's quoting them when he says, I have the right to do anything. So evidently, they were following their culture in the city, and they were saying, you know, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we have the right to do anything. He says, you say that, but not everything is beneficial for you. He says, he's quoting them again, I have the right to do anything. And his response is, but I will not be mastered by anything. So he gives them, in the context of their conversation, he's saying, you're talking about you have the right to do anything. You can do anything that you want. And maybe that's true. But here's some filtering questions for you, church at Corinth, and maybe even church at Canton. Here's some filtering questions for you. When you think about the things that you could do, when you think about the things that you want to do, ask yourself these two questions. All the way at one end of the spectrum is I can do anything I want to do. But somewhere along that continuum is this question. Is this beneficial for me? Is this beneficial for me? Now, maybe yes, maybe no. This is not a, a, a sin issue, a salvation issue a lot of times. This is not you get into heaven, you get into hell. That's not always what the beneficial question is, but it's just to help you use wisdom and how you should respond, what behaviors you should take part in, what things you should do. Is this beneficial? But a little farther down the continuum from is this beneficial is what he said to them when he said, I will not be mastered by anything. The second question that you might ask yourself is, are there people like me who have done this, and they became controlled by it. Are there people like me, similar people to my circumstance, my age, my demographic, and my community, whatever, that have done what I'm contemplating doing, have they become controlled by it? Is there something where they lost control of themselves, even momentarily because of this behavior, this substance, whatever? Are they controlled by it? So is it beneficial? Is it controlling? Because here's what we know. Here's what I believe that we all know. I've not met every person in the world, but I've met a lot of them. And I don't believe that anybody in the world starts out to become addicted to something. I don't think that they do. I don't think that most of the people, pretty much none of the people that I've met and, and most of their friends that I haven't met and all the other people that I still haven't met in the world, I don't think anybody sets out to become an addict. I think they start out, they do something Remember the definition of addiction, they get relief or they get reward and they go, well, that felt good. I'll do that again. And then I liked that, so I'll do that again and I'll do that again and I'll do that again until that pattern of getting rewarded or that pattern of experiencing relief or that pattern of getting a rush 
causes them to continue in this behavior time and time and time again until they go, oh my goodness, I am now controlled by this. Remember the definition of addiction. I I, I almost can't abstain from this. I can't get out of it. It's affecting my relationships. It's affecting my interpersonal skills. It's, It's affecting the rhythm of my life. I don't even know what to do now. Nobody starts out as an addict. They, they start using a substance. They start a behavior, and they find themselves in a pattern, in a routine of behavior that they never, ever, 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 ever thought is the way that this would end up. So let's get practical for a couple minutes. I want to talk for just a minute about sexual sin, addiction, adultery, lust, those kind of things. We just read a really high percentage of people struggle in different areas with these types of issues. So let's get really practical. There's a very basic, straightforward command from God in Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. This was given to God by Moses for his people, and it says this, do not commit adultery. That's that's basic. If you came today and you were unsure if that was a gray area or not, it's not. (laughs) Do not commit adultery. There's a lot of places where that one's for sure. So here's what happened. They followed that for several hundred years. And then Jesus showed up and he raised the bar. And he said when he was in his very first sermon on Ma- in Matthew chapter 5 called the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he said very early in that sermon. He said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eye has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what was Jesus doing? He was saying, here's the bar that Moses set. The words of God came. Here's the bar. Don't commit adultery. Adultery being don't do anything with someone who's not your spouse that you should only do with your spouse, right? Physically, this is what we're talking. Don't do that. Jesus comes and says, I want to raise the bar. I'm saying that there is a path that leads to destruction. And I don't want you to even get started down that path. So before you ever get to the physical act, let's use our eyes for things that are wholesome and healthy. And let's not use our eyes for things that would lead us towards destruction, Because here's the deal. Jesus was telling us that adultery is not a physical act. It's a heart issue. He said, here's what you need to know. Before you ever get to anything physical, before you ever get to adultery, you need to understand that lust is something that happens with your eyes that actually shows me what your heart is. You've done this in your heart. Now, what is is lust? It's not somebody passes, you go, wow, they're beautiful. Wow, they're really good looking. Lust is the second look and the third look, and the fourth look, and the contemplation, and the wondering, not just wandering, the wondering of what might be, when, how, if. That's what we're talking about. Before you ever get to something physical, it is a heart issue. And that's what Jesus said you should not do. He flipped it on its head. Now, he did the same thing with murder. Now, I don't know if anybody in this room has an addiction to murder, but if you do, There are some incredible churches in this town that I would love to help point you in that direction. There's some great churches, great pastors, because everybody's looking at me. If you have an addiction to murder, I'm number one. Like, let's help you find another church. But here's what Jesus said. He said, listen, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I say, don't even get angry towards someone in your heart or you've already already killed them. And you go, thanks for that word of encouragement, Jeremy. I was angry on the way to church this morning, (laughs) right? No, you go, 
Okay, Jesus is raising the bar. He's saying there is a path that leads to destruction. And before you even get to destruction, let's not even get on the path. Let's make sure that we control our emotions and we try to make sure we're not getting angry to the point that we are thinking things and wanting to do things and so upset with people that we can't even control what we feel and how we act. Do not allow that to get into your heart. He's saying there is something here that you need to abstain from. So let's take some of those same ideas. Let's look at substance abuse. Substance abuse and addiction to substances of any kind, when I talk about them, I always start in the same place. When I'm meeting with people, counseling sessions, talking to folks that are wrestling with these issues, I always start in the same place. I start in the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter of the Bible. And those of you that are Bible scholars, you're thinking, I don't remember Adam and Eve having a drug problem. I'm not sure that that's in there, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And when I'm reading that, at 8.30 especially, people were looking at me like, I think you put the wrong scripture in your notes. I don't remember anything in there that was about substance abuse. But look in verse 28. He said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. The word subdue there in the original language is the word kavash. Subdue, everywhere it's used in Scripture, and it's used a number of times, means that the ground, you are called, Adam and Eve, those that are made in the image of God, which is all of us in this room, you are called to subdue the earth. You are called to bring into captivity, bring into bondage, make subservient to you the earth. Now, I recognize that not every substance, every drug comes out of the ground. I realize there are synthetic drugs now. I realize there are chemically manufactured drugs. But a lot of drugs, most drugs, have some origination in the ground. And the truth here is that God created us and gave us power over the things that come out of the ground. And if you are being controlled by those things... If you are not taking into captivity, taking into bondage, making subservient the things that are in the ground, but it's putting you in bondage, it's controlling you, it's making you subservient to it, you've taken the creative order and flipped it on its head. Because what you've done is you've said, okay, here's the deal. I'm supposed to take captive everything that comes out of the ground, but the stuff that's coming out of the ground that now controls me is not the way that God ordained things. He said, no, 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 listen, you're in control I've given you everything that comes out of the ground for you. And if you take it and you allow it to control you, you are in the wrong. We've allowed drugs and alcohol and tobacco and other natural drugs that do come out of the earth. We've, we've justified these things and we've allowed these things, not, not for use. I'm not talking about use. I'm talking about addiction. I'm talking about struggle. I'm talking about control. And you say, okay, well, listen, Jeremy, you don't, you don't understand my circumstance. It doesn't control me. It doesn't control me. I, when I get nervous, I just smoke a little bit. That's, it doesn't control me. I just smoke when I get nervous. 
You remember the definition of addiction? You're looking for relief or reward through recurring behavior. It's an addiction. You say, no, no, you don't understand my circumstances, Jeremy. I, listen, I almost never, ever abuse alcohol. Almost never. Only on the weekends when I go out with my friends, when I've had a rough week. I, you don't understand. It doesn't control me. Only at certain places with certain groups of people. With... What was the definition of addiction? We're looking for relief. We're looking for reward, a.k.a. in this circumstance, acceptance from a group of people we're not convinced we would get it otherwise. Through a recurring behavior, we're talking about addiction. You say, well, I, I, you don't understand. It, it, it doesn't control me. I think it probably controls you more than you think. Here's the, here's the truth, I believe. If you have a behavior that recurs with the same triggers, you most likely have an addiction. What do I mean by trigger? I mean anything that prompts a response. Anything that creates a response in you. Let me give you an example. I have a friend, and, and he had not, again, not use of alcohol, abuse of alcohol, self declared abuse of alcohol, trying to get free from it. Said, I, I don't want this to be my life story. I can't control myself. And here's what he identified through the process that he was using. God kind of surrounded him with people and he used some programs. He did some things, but God did a supernatural work in him as well. Here, here's what he identified. His trigger, probably not a trigger for anybody else in the room. He said, I know this sounds stupid. Here's my trigger. If I watched football in my garage, I had to have a beer. Had to. He said, here was the problem for me. When I was watching football in my garage, one beer turned into two beers, which turned into four beers, which turned into I couldn't remember who was playing in the second half. That was his trigger. So he said, here's what I had to do. I don't know, this is going to sound crazy to some of you. He said, here's what I had to do. I had to quit watching football in my garage. I still watch football. I watch it in my living room. I don't have the same impulse. He said, I still pay tax on the whole property. It's still my house. But I don't watch football in my garage anymore because when I do, I have to drink. And when I drink, I drink way too much. That was his trigger. If you have a behavior that recurs with the same triggers, you most likely have an addiction. Here's what I said when I was in student ministry for about 10 years. Here's what I would say to students related to temptation. I would say if, if you show up to school often and you find out you have a test, and you realize you're not prepared for that test, and so you look for the smart people to sit next to them so that you can cheat, right? You need to start sitting next to dumb people. That's what you need to do, right? Because what would it do? You, you start looking at that guy's test, and you go, oh, God, he's dumber than I am. I got to start studying for tests, <laughs> right? This is what we have to do. To break the cycle of temptation, we have to change the behavior. It's saying that if you have, I'm not even making fun, if you have an overeating problem, you need to stop, at least for a season, going to all-you-can-eat buffets, right? You need to pay for everything you're putting in your mouth. You have to change your behavior to change the outcome. If you have a behavior that recurs with the same set of triggers, you most likely have an addiction. And the first step today is admitting that you have a problem. And I know that sounds cliche, and you're like, okay, what are the other 11 steps? No, 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 seriously. 
You need to say, I have a problem, I have an addiction. I don't know that I've ever called it that before, but I recognize that there is something that I'm doing that is controlling me, and I've got to get control of it. Because here's been my experience. If you can't name it, you can't deal with it. If you can't name it, you cannot deal with it. If you just kind of let it linger out there, you're never going to ever bring it under subjection. You're never going to subdue it. If you can't name it, you can't deal with it. My favorite verse in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's a lot of reasons this is my favorite verse, but one of them is the very first part of this verse, which says there's no temptation that seizes you. There's no temptation that overcomes you. There's no temptation that you face except that which is common to man. Because one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is that he would convince you that your struggle is different from everybody else's and you can't talk about it and nobody would understand what you're going through. But that's a lie. Because the Bible tells us that whatever you're being tempted by, whatever your temptation, your struggle is, that somebody else in this room probably, or for sure somebody else across all three of our services, they're struggling with the same stuff. There's somebody in your life group that can relate to what you're going through. There's somebody on your serving team that can relate to what you're going through. You just have to open up and share that with them so that you recognize there's commonality in my struggle here. I also love in this verse that it says that God is faithful. And it says that he's so faithful that he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. Now, this part of this verse has been so misquoted, so misinterpreted, so misused. It does not mean God won't put on you more than you can handle. Just don't share that on Facebook, please. That's not in the Bible, okay? What this is saying is that there is not a single temptation that you would face that is stronger than the power of God who sent Jesus to the cross to overcome all sin and all temptation. He said, God is faithful that every temptation that you face, no matter how strong it is, no matter how much it feels like you're at war, which we'll talk about, no matter how much you feel like you can't overcome it, no matter how long you've been dealing with it, every single temptation that you face is overcomable because of the power of Jesus Christ on the cross and God's faithfulness. That's the truth. That's the truth. It also says that there's always a way out. You ever been in a moment where you were tempted to do something? You go, there's no way out. This is hopeless. There is no way to defeat this. I, I cannot get out of this situation. A couple things. Yes, you can. It's probably going to be awkward. It may hurt you. It may cause you to lose relationships. It may cost you money. But there's always a way out. And usually the way out was a little bit before you got into it. Right? You, you understand what I'm saying? Like not going when you knew you shouldn't go. Not hanging out with that person when you knew you shouldn't hang out with that person. Like there's always a way out. Every single time. The best way I know to conclude this is by looking at Galatians chapter 5 to see this war, this struggle. It says this beginning in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, uh, uh, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self 
control. Against such things, there is no law. The reason that it feels like when you're trying to get free from addiction that you're literally at war, the reason that it makes you break out in cold sweats, the reason that it makes you cry, the reason that your body revolts against you, the reason that it hurts so bad is because you are at war. Your spirit and your flesh are contrary to one another. And what your flesh desires to do or has given in to do time and time and time again, your spirit wants you to be free from. And it's trying to rip that stuff out of you. You're at war. But the fruit of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, it produces some things in you. If you're led by the Spirit of God, what it does in you is it produces a lot of things, and one of those is self-control. You always have the ability, when led by the Spirit, to control yourself. Every time. Always. And so I would ask you this question. Are you led by God's Spirit so much that you can control your flesh? I would actually say a statement like this. The more I let God control the inside of me, the easier it is for me to control the outside of me. The more that I let God control the inside of me, the easier it is for me to control the outside of me. Now, here's what I want you to hear from me today. I'm not making light of your addiction. I'm not trying to make it sound like You just walk out and you should never have the desire again, the craving again. You should never struggle with this again. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the power of God is enough for you to overcome your struggles. That there's victory available to you. And that the more you allow God to lead the inside of you, lead your spirit, the easier it will be for you to control the outside of you, those fleshly desires. And so I'm not an artist in any way. My stick people look like they have an eating disorder. I can't draw. But let's just for a second, just humor me for a second. I'll try to spin this around so you can see it a little bit. Let's imagine that this is a road. Okay? That's a road. It is leading to life. This is the the highway, the road to life. Like this is where you're living right here. Okay? And let's just imagine that this is me. Okay? So this is my reality. This is the road that I'm on, the life that I'm on, the pursuit that I'm on. This is what's happening to me. Now, let's assume, I have terrible handwriting here. Let's assume that up here is addiction, danger, destruction, right? Same stuff down here. Addiction, danger, destruction, sin, harm, whatever you want to call it. That's what's happening outside of this road. Now, whenever I'm driving on a road, the danger that exists on the outside of the road is not where I'm driving, right? I'm driving on the road. But the people that made the road did something, very, they did something great for me. Just inside of the edge of the road, they came in a few feet and they put in guardrails. And then on the other side of the guardrails, they actually came in and they put those little ruts that make you think your tires are exploding. And then just on the other side of that, they actually drew white lines. So I'm not driving up to the edge of danger. I'm actually driving right down the middle so that I'm not close to danger and destruction when I'm in my car driving my car down the road. I'm actually away from danger. And there are several safety measures 
along here, right? Guardrails and these ruts in the road. There's several things that if I get out of my lane, which just happened the other day, somebody slammed on their brakes. I had all my kids in the car. I slammed on my brakes. I swerved into that emergency lane. But guess what? I didn't run off the road, not officially, like out into the grass. I didn't do that. I stayed over here where there was a little bit of extra safety. Now, if I'd have kept going, I was in trouble. But they created this safety area for me to escape danger if I had to leave the road. So in my life, as I'm doing life, how close are you driving to danger? How close are you justifying your behavior? How much are you trying to see what you can get away with? How close are you getting to these edges of the road where you say, well, I'm not actually doing anything wrong. Like I've still got enough power to overcome and I'm still good right out here. But you're so close that one momentary lapse of judgment, one moment of weakness, and you find yourself up in the weeds. So what do we do? Self-control, being led by the Spirit, says, I'm going to go in and create my own guardrails. I'm going to go in and I'm going to create my own sense of I've got some safety and some margin in my life. So what does that look like? It looks like a lot of things depending on what your struggles are or the issues that you may face. In my life, there's several things that I've tried to do to do this. Now, I would tell you, if you sat a beer right there, I could let it sit there till it rotted. That's not, that's not a struggle for me. But there are other things throughout my life that I've struggled with, and so I always want to be careful. And then even areas where I don't have a struggle, I want to create this kind of margin so that I don't ever approach danger, right? I want to make sure that there's nothing. I want to live a life that's above reproach, nothing that would harm me or allow me in a momentary, just lapse of judgment, a moment of weakness, to find myself in trouble. And so we do a lot of things, not just for me, but our entire family, not just for me, but Corey and our kids, and we protect our internet. We have devices in our home that completely covers our home network where you can't get to certain things, some things that aren't even harmful, some things that are frustrating, we can't get to them as a family because we wanna create these guardrails. I've sat in too many counseling sessions with couples, and they say, well, how did we even get here? And when you trace back how they got there, it started online with an old fling and a relationship that was innocent at first, just catching up. But it came out of some birth of frustrations in their marriage, and eventually they crossed a line they never intended to cross. So I'll tell you what I do. It's as practical as I can be. I'm not friends with former girlfriends online. You say, well, that's stupid. What is this, some kind of cult? No. No, I'm just, they're great people. Like it's not about them. This past week, I got a friend request. Somebody I used to date. I was 18, 19 years old. Great girl, loves God, has a family. As soon as I got the friend request, you know what I did? Took a screenshot, sent it to my wife. Said, just so you know, again, I'm deleting this. There's nothing wrong with that person. This is not about them. It's not even about me. I don't have that desire, but I just want you to know that what I committed to you when we stood in front of our friends and family and we took our vows... And we say to each other every single anniversary and some other days during the year, we say, hey, we want to we make this thing at least 75 years. And on our 75th wedding anniversary, we want to look at each other and we want to say, hey, I've been faithful to you the entire time. And you could look at me and say, I've been faithful to you the whole time. I'm not even getting out here to chance it. I'm going to live down here. You say, that, that's crazy. I don't understand. That's okay. You don't have to understand. I want to live a life of self-control. 
There are other issues in my life where I try to put up these guardrails and I have people that hold me accountable to that so that if I'm doing life right through here and I get up here even remotely, I'm, I'm driving along, I'm doing life, and they just see me kind of approaching the line. They can come to me before I ever get in trouble and they can say, man, what, what are you doing? You're not even in trouble yet, but there's some things I see in you and I don't recognize them because that's not who you've claimed to be. You don't look like you're being led by the Spirit. You don't look like... You're actually trying to stay away from danger. You actually look like you're trying to get as close to danger as you can. That's not who you are. You need to, you need to get back. And again, you look at this and you go, I don't know, man. I'm just not sure I can do that. I'm not sure that I want to do that because that seems like it takes all the fun out of life. It seems like it takes all the freedom out of life. You don't know what my job is. You don't know how stressful it is. You don't know what things I need to get away from time to time. You don't know how bad my relationships are. I'm not sure I can live a kind of life like that that has that little freedom. Is it? Because if this is me, and let's just go back and look at Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. You know what God said to Adam and Eve? He said, you can actually have any tree in the garden. He did not start out by saying, don't sin. Don't do this. Don't do that. Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. If, if you think that, I, I, honestly, somewhere somebody's misled you. You know what he said? He said, you have freedom. The entire garden is yours. There is one tree that I'm asking you to abstain from, and you've got to trust me. The enemy's going to distort it. He's going to lie to you. He's going to try to make you think that it's okay. But I'm telling you that you need to abstain from one tree because it will lead to destruction. And you know what Adam and Eve did? They did what you and I do. They ignored all of their other freedoms and focused on the one thing they couldn't have. And so they probably did. This is not in the Bible, but I assume it because they're like me. I think they probably walked around the garden and they saw the tree way over there and they just kind of looked at it and go, that's a pretty tree. I don't know why he didn't say, he said we couldn't have something from that tree. That's a really nice tree. Then they probably like walked by it two days later, just kind of look up under, oh yeah, there's good fruit up in there. Then the next day, seemed like the birds were chirping better over there. So they went and had a picnic underneath its branches. And then the next day they went together and stood by the tree and just admired its beauty completely ignoring all the other freedom that was available to them. Every other gift that had been given, they were focusing on one thing. And then one day Eve shows up, moan of weakness. She looks at the tree. The serpent twists the truth. She eats of the fruit. She gives it to Adam. And they lost all of their freedom. They were kicked out of the garden. Every tree that God had given them as a gift, everything that they could do, every freedom that was available to them, they lost because they focused on the one thing that God said no. What are you focused on today? You focused on all the things God said you can have or are you mad at God because he said there was something you couldn't have? Addiction to pleasure. If today you're here and you say, I don't even know if I would have called it an addiction before I came in, but now I think I probably have something like that. We're gonna pray for you. We're gonna pray for your freedom for God to heal you and forgive you and to help you find victory because it's available to you. And some of the people in this room can testify to that. The other thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna pray that you would pursue whatever means necessary to subdue those things, to control those things. 
that are controlling you. If that's counseling, we support it. If it's a program, we support it. Whatever it takes, find freedom. Let's pray. God, today I pray for every person in this place. I pray for every person that has a struggle, every person that has an addiction, every person that has an issue. No matter what they call it, no matter what they think it is, God, right now I pray for freedom. I pray, God, that you would help every person in this room to live the kind of life that you've called them to live. And I believe that's a life of freedom to enjoy all of the things that you've blessed them with. Help them not to focus on the one thing. Help them not to put their eyes on the one thing they're not supposed to have, but God, to trust you that you know best. And God, let us live a life of victory and freedom today. God, help them to name it so they can deal with it. Help them to identify those triggers so that they can abstain from them. And God, help them to recognize that they have self-control and that you are faithful so that no temptation that they face can overcome them, but there's always a way out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.